today I, I wanted to go back to really the basics of one Buddhist practice. And this talk is really for me as well, because I've been experienced as an unawakened person living in this um, busy, ever-changing modern society, this inevitable unmindfulness that comes up from time to time. And there are different degrees of unmindfulness. So in the past few weeks, for example, so I'm in Toronto, just helping my mom with some health related matters. And I've been just trying these new recipes um, to improve her health and her well-being. And I attempted a new recipe that called for four servings, but I only required two. So that meant that I had to reduce all the ingredients by half. So I initially followed the instructions while reducing the servings, but as I moved down the list, I neglected to reduce the amount of seasonings. So yes, ended up adding too much salt. So the salt just overpowered everything. It overpowered the flavor of the vegetables, the grains, the beans. So I, I just had to laugh at myself because like I was like chopping and grinding and combining everything. And then finally, it all tasted like salt. So um, it really reminded me of the importance of mindfulness and that the and that one moment of unmindfulness can make everything before quite pointless. Um, so I reflected on that and then I thought to myself, oh my goodness, how important it is in this practice of transforming our unmindfulness to mindfulness. And that's what we're here to do really. And the thing with that situation, it was a very isolated situation, meaning that it didn't have an impact, a huge impact on other people. But that's not always the case. There are cases in our life when we do things that have a huge impact, maybe to our family, in our work, in our school, in our community, in our society. And these moments of unmindfulness can really cause a great deal of stress, damage, and harm. And unfortunately, in some cases, that, mind, that moment of unmindfulness can really determine life or death. So I think the sages and the Buddhas, they weren't saying to us, oh, live a flawless life, you know, don't make a mistake. I believe their message was, you know, let us help you reduce your suffering. Let us help you free you from the suffering. Take our hand as we guide you through this practice. And the harmful habits that you may have now, we're going to show you how you can break free from them. But there's always that warning, which is, it's not going to be easy. Living an awakened life and awakening to who we truly are requires work. So if you read our scriptures in the, the very opening, there's a chapter called the founding motive of the teaching. And this chapter explains clearly the purpose of our practice. And interestingly, when you read through it carefully, you'll notice a pattern. And the pattern is that Sutta-san uses very strong expressions. There's words like conquer, power, domination. So when I read, I remember reading this as a novice and a pre-minister, and I was like, ouch, why is this sound so strong and harsh? My goodness, shouldn't the opening of a teaching be gentler, softer, you know, less militaristic? And some people may think, oh, well, maybe he used that language because when Buddhism emerged during a very turbulent time in Korea. 
But Sotisan wasn't just thinking about that time, nor was he just focusing on Korea. He was really thinking widely and in the future. So there is a passage in the scriptures where he's talking, Sotisan is talking to members in a meditation hall, and he says, our practice dharma is the art of war for pacifying a warring world. And you are all like the cadets who are learning that art of war. The wars are those that arise incessantly in the countries of people's minds. The country of the mind is originally untouched and peaceful, bright and pure, but it becomes complicated and disturbed due to selfish desires. Therefore, the mind's war is the origin of all other wars and the most severe of them all. So the question is, what kind of world are we living in that Sotisan would have to use such strong expressions? And I think one thing we can reflect on is what are the sensory conditions that we face today compared to the past? And here, when I say sensory conditions, it means anything that my sense organs of eyes, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind comes into contact with. So if we think back to the time of Swatis, Master Sutisan in the rural areas of Korea, there, it was quite different. I mean, not saying uh, worse or better, but the sensory conditions probably mostly arose from the natural environment or the relationships between people. But if you look at the situation today, especially in our society, we are bombarded. Our sense organs are, it's like sensory overload. Um, that one digital device that we have. Oh my goodness. I had one friend recently show me TikTok. Oh no. TikTok of, of Catholic nuns who now started to TikTok their own channel. So she's like, yeah, you one Buddhist community should get into TikTok and start marketing yourself. But I was like, when I was doing the TikTok, I was like, this is what they mean by doom scroll. Like you start and you don't stop. And so it started, I started thinking to myself, wow, it's so easy to be dragged and pulled and attracted and actually sometimes out of control. So Sutta-san uses that word training, you know, it's not just a practice, it's a really a training that we need to do, not just in rest, but also in action. So it's to realize, okay, right now I'm in a, I may not be awaken, but I'm on that path to Buddhahood and I'm on the path to learn to how to use my mind well. So Buddha gave birth to that teaching, all things are created by the mind. So Tisang carried on the message by adding, well, let me tell you, let me show you how to use your mind well. So this practice that we're doing is guiding us to see clearly who we are. So that when I'm doing something, I'm able to make choices skillfully with sound thought, to make choices which is not judging, resisting, or clinging to anything. So I gave you some examples of what it means to be unmindful. And unmindful means not to be present, that my mind is somewhere else. And we have so many examples of this when we engage in everyday conversations, perhaps with our friends, maybe you're there, but sometimes we tune out. Or when we read something, we're reading it and then we, we realize we have to reread it again. Same with meditation, we can sit 
on our chair or a cushion, our body's there, but sometimes our mind is somewhere else. So we can go on a week retreat. Physically, we can be there. We And actually, our mind is not there at all. So we call that conceptual practice, meaning that you're, you have the form, but you're not really doing it. And this is the same with prayer too. So in one Buddhism, we do have prayer every morning and every evening. And I remember being in Yongsan in Korea and I was doing the form. I was like this, right? Very, but I wasn't there. My mind was somewhere else, but because I do it every day, it became conceptual. I have the form, but I'm not there. So how many times are we truly here? Or are we caught and dragged around by circumstances? So Sutsasana says we need to train our mind so that we can be as honest as we can in noticing what is really going on with us in this moment. And doing this over and over, thousands and thousands of times until it wears out. And this training, it promotes the welfare of ourselves and of course of other people. Because when we practice, we pay attention. The more we practice, the greater our understanding is not just of ourselves, but of how life works. So this practice in action and rest, what I loved about this service is that it was such a great example of what we mean by practice at rest, when we are free of activity. This is the time for that practice of one pointedness of mind, right? It is the practice to cultivate that clear, stable, non-judgmental awareness by focusing on one thing, not being distracted by another thing. So we as you practiced in the seated meditation, focusing on the tanjan, the lower abdomen, which is the center of our energy. We recited the Buddha's name, Namu Amitabhu. We did the prayer. With these types of practices, what we are doing is creating a simplified space. So when you think about it, throughout the day, we're in constant movement. There's lots of things going on, activities, online, offline, lots of people talking. When we simplify the situation, when we take away the externals and remove ourselves from our smartphone, from our TV, from people, we get a chance to face ourselves. And we need to simplify the situation so that we have an opportunity to take a good look at ourselves because what we tend to look at isn't ourselves, but everything else. And I know that from my own experience, when something goes wrong, the first thing sometimes is this, what's outside? Who's, who's at fault? But this practice is about going inwards. We're not focusing on what we can't control. What we're focusing on is what's in our hands and what's in control. And the more we do this, truly do the practice, not the conceptual practice, but truly do the practice, we start to uncover our potential for peaceful, compassionate, and liberated lives. So as Toyin Gyomani explained in, the, in the, the introduction to seated meditation and chanting, it's really to help us to calm, right? The deluded thoughts and manifest the true nature. And it takes courage to do that. You know, we have to be willing to do something that is, it's not easy. 
and it requires patience and perseverance. And when we continue that with guidance from a, a teacher, then gradually what happens, our life starts to settle down, we become more balanced. Our emotions no longer start dominating us. And as we sit, and perhaps you may have experienced this, we find that the primary thing that we must work with is the busy chaotic mind. We're all caught up in this thinking. And the problem, problem in practice is really to begin to bring that thinking into clarity and balance. So when the mind, when we do that tangent practice, when the mind becomes clear and balanced and no longer caught up in objects, that's when an opening happens. And then we start to have even seconds of realization of who we are. But I hear sometimes you know, people want that quick fix or you see those books, you know, meditation, you know, in a week and everything's cool. But really sitting is not something that we do for a year or two and we think that we're gonna master it. It's a lifetime in Buddhism, lifetimes, right? But over time, what's, what's really great about this training is that for those of you who've been in the army or have done any sort of training is when you do it consistently, there's transformation, right? And over time, we start to live differently. We work differently. We relate to people differently. So when people ask me, they say, why do you have faith in one Buddhism? And I tell them, because I saw my father change through the training. There's evidence. When I was in Korea, I saw pre-ministers also change from year one to year four. So you'd have students come in, their parents would drop them off, their teachers or they'd be like, just please guide this, this our child or guide the student. Um, he may not pay attention very well, but, you know, just help. And the student, after years and years, you see the significant change. And when they come to graduation, the parents and the teachers are so shocked. They're like, wow. So our second head Dharma Master Chong San said there are levels of meditative absorption. And the first level is the ability to just even stay focused in the tension for one hour. The second level is when you're in absorption for a few days. And the final is when you can keep that meditative state either when you're in action or at rest. I had one teacher say even focusing for a few minutes is amazing. And this practice at rest is fundamental because we're not always going to be on the cushion or on the chair. For most of the day, we're engaged in some kind of activity. And when we're in motion, we need to be aware of several things at once. So unlike meditation at rest, we can't necessarily tune out our environment. It's not always a simplified space. In fact, it's usually quite complex. So just imagine like a soccer player, when she's not in a tournament, she'll be practiced practicing kicking the ball into the net perhaps over and over again so it's just the ball the distance from her where she's standing to the net and perhaps a goalie so it's a very simplified space with not a lot of distraction but she's honing a skill but think about the actual tournament it's no longer just the ball and the net 
she has to now think about so many other factors, the other players, her opponents, decide whether to pass or run with the ball. Then you have like the spectators around. Everything needs to be taken into consideration, which reminds me of that you know, famous story in our scriptures of Sutisan disciple who was preparing the herbal medicine while sewing. You hear that story a lot. And she ended up burning the medicine because she was so concentrated on the sewing. And what Sutisan says is that in this situation, perfect one pointedness of mind and true practice is to be mindful of both. You're doing, preparing the medicine and the sewing. So he's saying that even if you have 10 or 20 duties, as long as you deal with them without any distraction, but an undivided state of mind, that is essential method of practice during action. And he points out that usually the problem is with us is that we have a lot of idle thinking, deluded thinking. So in one Buddhism, we have both this practice in action and rest and they work together. And this practice we do, the formal practice at rest really helps to strengthen the mind so that when we encounter any kind of challenging situations in life, we can maintain that stillness, that centeredness, even when we are moving. So think about a difficult person in your life right now. Someone perhaps that you don't like very much, but when you see them, you're like, have that groan inside like, oh. Well, that's our Buddha. That's your practice. That is your Buddha for your practice. And the first step is really setting intention that this Buddha is going to be part of my practice. Before starting practice, we may have not noticed the automatic thoughts that emerged when seeing that person. Oh, you know, oh, he's so annoying. Oh, there he goes again, saying the same thing as last time. But with the practice, we begin to bring that effort and total intention into our relationships as well. So you could be talking to him and also be aware of any thoughts that interrupt the conversation. Like, oh, when is he going to leave? Why is he wearing that? All those extra thoughts that have nothing to do with the conversation, you're able to be aware of that. And if the mind drifts, you have the power now to return it to the conversation. And this is possible when we're grounded in the practice, when we're grounded in that practice at rest. So you can ma maintain rooted in action. So yesterday uh, I looked out the window and I saw like several trees and the wind was blowing and the leaves were going back and forth. And there was no resistance. I, I was just watching the leaves, there's no resistance. It was just flowing naturally and they were moving, but they had that strong trunk and the deep roots, right? So that it allowed a certain amount of stillness and they were not carried away by the wind. And I think that's what our practice is like. This practice at rest really helps us to experience that sense of groundedness so that even though things are moving around, we're flowing, we have space, but we're not pulled or dragged by it. So I think one of the first steps is just to reflect on my daily time and is how can I incorporate a truly formal practice at rest into my schedule, build it in, not pack it in, but build it 
and if possible, practicing even short times every day. And the key is not skipping a day if possible. But what I'm sharing today really is the talk, right? Talking is not it. Um, Master Sutasan once said that one way we can make a Buddha offering to truth is to cleanse our body and mind, make a vow before the Dharmakaya Buddha, remove all distracting thoughts and single-mindedly offer up our sincerity by either entering samadhi, reciting the Buddha's name. So the good thing is, is that we're already on this path. And as you all know, we don't do it just for ourselves. Perhaps we do it at first and that's fine. But as our life gets grounded, when it gets real, uh, when it gets basic, other people immediately sense it. And what we are begins to influence everything around us. So when we recite the Iron Sang Vow, um, it's a reminder that we are uncovering our Buddha nature, our true nature, and that the practice is never ending. Uh, and when we do it slowly, unexpectedly, transformation happens. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.